Well, please, once again, turn in your Bibles to Mark 9. Mark 9 this morning. It's always a joy to bring the Word of God and particularly to preach the Lord Jesus Christ from the Gospels. Mark chapter 9, our text this morning is verses 14 through 29 that we read in our Scripture reading today. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, when we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. And I want you to have that statement in your mind as I draw your attention to what Jesus says in verse 19 of our text, O faithless generation, and then bring him to me. When we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. O faithless generation, bring him to me. The context of our passage this morning is that Jesus and Peter and James and John have just descended from the Mount of Transfiguration, where there was fellowship with Moses and Elijah and God the Father, where God the Father endorsed His Son, saying, listen to Him, listen to Him. And like so many other places in Scripture, and many times that correspond with our own experience in the Christian life, lofty spiritual highs are often followed by intense confrontation with the world and with evil. You think about Moses on Mount Sinai. He descended after receiving the law of God to the idolatry of the Israelites. Elijah was on Mount Horeb, and he descended from Mount Horeb to face the paganism of Ahab and Jezebel. Jesus went from the baptism of John the Baptist to face temptation from the devil himself in the wilderness. Lofty highs in this world, God in His grace gives us opportunities and times and seasons of sweet fellowship with Him, but often Those mountaintop experiences are followed by intense confrontation with the world in the mundane of dealing with evil of a fallen world in which we live. And so as Jesus and His disciples descend from the mountain, they are met with the chaos and the fog that's generated by unbelief. In verse 14, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with the disciples. And in the midst of that, a man steps forward and reveals the source of the conflict. He's brought a need to the disciples of Christ, and they've been incapable of helping him. They were not able to deal with the unclean spirit. And what we find from Jesus' response, "'Oh, faithless generation,' And also, as we'll see from Jesus' response to His disciples when He asked them, why is it that we could not cast out this demon? Why could we not deal with this spirit? The overarching, prevailing issue is faithlessness, a lack of faith represented by the disciples and those gathered with them. We probably understand this, what it is to come to Scripture, to believe what God has said, and then yet to be confronted with something in God's Word that challenges us, something that we are uncomfortable submitting to. We, we understand what it is to follow Christ, and yet at times to find great difficulty in believing what God has said in His Word. 
And that is the context of what is happening here. There is a faithlessness prevailing this scene. So as we begin to look at the passage this morning, I want to raise a question. What is faith? What is faith? If faithlessness is a problem, well, what is faith? And I'm just going to go through a few descriptions here. You know, faith is really kind of hard to define. So hopefully these descriptions will help us as we consider this aspect of a crisis of faith this morning. What is faith? Well, faith grasps the substance of unseen realities. It's important to think about that, the wording of that. Faith grasps the substance of unseen realities. And what do I mean by grasping the the wording? Well, faith does not give substance to what is unseen, but accepts the reality of what is unseen. In other words, what is unseen, what is eternal, what God has revealed to us in His Word is true, and it is substantial, whether or not we believe it. But faith brings the substance of those unseen realities to bear on our own minds and our own souls. Faith believes that objective revelation about things beyond experience is true and that spiritual realities are indeed real. And in a day and time where personal experience often defines our existence, defines what we believe is true, it's critical for us to understand that the ultimate, the ultimate matters are not a matter of our personal experience. The ultimate matters are a matter of what God has revealed. That is truth. That is what is real. And faith Faith believes that what God has said is objectively true, whether or not we have seen it, whether or not we have experienced it, God has spoken and it is true. We won't turn over there, but for your reference in Hebrews 11, which is the faith chapter in the New Testament, we're we're given examples of, of things that faith grasps in substance. And the first one is creation. You weren't there when God created everything out of nothing. But God has revealed that's precisely what took place. And faith grasps that and it believes that. And it, and it says this is true, this is substantial, this is real because God has said it. God revealed it. And that statement, as you go through Hebrews chapter 11, is followed by examples of people who accepted God's word as final, and the evidence that they accepted God's word as final is that they ordered their lives according to what God said, not according to what they saw or what they felt. For example, Moses, Moses left the riches and the glories of Egypt, and the writer of Hebrews says, to follow Christ. And we're told in 1 Peter chapter 1, Moses as a prophet, he didn't know all of the details of Christ. He acted in faith. He followed the Lord. Abraham, Abel, And so many others are listed there in Hebrews 11. But again, the the unifying factor of that chapter is that people listened to what God said and they ordered their lives here according to what God, the eternal God of of heaven revealed and not by what they saw or felt. Faith embraces God's revelation of Himself through Scripture and through His Son and responds by ordering life accordingly. 
We say what God says is real, what God says matters, and my life will be ordered based on what God says, not based only on what I think, on what I experience. The reality, of course, is that everyone who follows Christ, even like the disciples, as we seek to follow Christ, as Christ grows us and conforms us more and more to the image of himself, we, we at times struggle to conform our lives to what is revealed instead of what we feel or what we see. But the essence of faith is that we grasp revelation, we believe that it is substantial, that it is real, and it plays out in our life as we order life according to the priorities of the Lord. A lack of faith, a lack of faith will render a Christian ineffective in service to Christ. You know, when we come to Scripture and we start debating with what God has said, when we fail to submit ourselves to the authority of the Word of God, to the authority of the Lord Jesus in our life, there, there is confusion that infects our life. When the world, when our flesh, when the devil holds sway in our thoughts and affections, and, and that's what happens when, we're, when we pull away from believing what God has said. And when that happens, when the world, the flesh, and the devil hold sway in our thoughts and in our affections, we end up investing in what is visible but passing away. And this is why John, of course, tells us in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, stop loving the world because everything that's in the world is passing away. He who does the will of God abides forever. A lack of faith will render a Christian and a follower of Christ ineffective in service to Christ, but... There's something we need to be very clear about, and we'll come back and see this from the passage. A lack of faith never renders Christ powerless. Because you don't believe doesn't mean that Christ is unable to work. It doesn't mean that Christ lacks any power. Your faith adds nothing to the power of the Lord Jesus. A lack of faith never renders Christ powerless. A lack of faith never frustrates the purposes of God. It simply reveals that we are helpless apart from Christ. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 5, Without me, without me, you can do nothing. Faith doesn't render Christ powerless. Faith doesn't frustrate the purposes of God or lack of faith. It simply shows how weak and frail we are apart from Christ. When the faithless disciples and the crowd and the scribes confront Christ, Christ remains entirely able to deliver from evil. And our theme today from this passage, I trust it is comforting. This passage is ultimately comforting. Jesus overcomes the faithlessness of his people. Jesus overcomes the faithlessness of his people. When we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Of course, this doesn't provide an excuse for a lack of faith. This doesn't provide an excuse to keep us from cultivating our faith in the Lord Jesus, from growing in our faith, from asking the Lord to help our unbelief. God in His mercy convicts us to bring us back to a prayerful dependence upon Him. When we do lack faith, often one of the first things to go is our prayer life. A lack of faith will strangle our prayer life. And what is, what is prayer? Well, prayer, prayer is us believing in God, believing that He hears our prayers, believing that He is capable to answer our prayers. 
And so if we lack faith, we're strangling, we're strangling the very lifeline of our prayer. Well, what do we see from this passage as we unpack this idea, this theme, that Jesus overcomes the faithlessness of His people? Well, first of all, let's notice that confrontation with evil exposes a lack of faith. Confrontation with evil exposes a lack of faith. The disciples were surprised. What what happened? And we see this at the end of the passage in verse 28. When they had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? They're befuddled. What, what happened? We've, we cast out demons in chapter 6 when, when the Lord sent out his disciples. They, they were successful in casting out demons. They were successful in carrying out the work of God. So they're befuddled. What happened? They, they didn't realize that something, something had changed. There was something affecting their usefulness to serve Christ, their ability to deal with evil. But it wasn't until they were confronted with this father, this desperate father, who had this great need. Look at what it says in verse 17, as as the father steps forward from the chaos of of the crowd, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. As the Father brought this desperate situation to the disciples of Christ, hoping to find relief, hoping that his boy would be delivered, the disciples found that... They were incapable. They were not able. And it's in the face of confrontation with evil that a lack of faith is exposed. We see a lot of evil in this passage. There's evil in general. This world is shot through with evil because of the fall and the effects of sin that surround us. Right? You exist in a world that is filled with evil. According to Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4 and 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, the world system, the organization of the world is energized by the devil. In fact, go ahead and turn to that passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul gives in Ephesians 2 the biography of everyone in the world. We're born in this world with the imputed guilt of Adam. And as a result, chapter 2 of Ephesians... Verse 1, you were dead in the, trespass, in, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So he's telling the Ephesians, the Ephesian, Ephesian church, chapter 1, here's what God did when He saved you. Now let's just rehearse what you were apart from Christ. You were dead, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And what did that look like? Well, you were following the course of this world. Your life was dominated by the organization of the cosmos, the world system. And then he gives another description. You were following the course of this world, and you could supply that is following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then he goes on to describe what God did when he made us alive in Jesus Christ. But the reality that Paul describes is that the world system is dominated by the spirit, 
by the prince of the power of the air, which again, John chapter 5, verse 19 says that the whole world is dominated by the evil one. So the world system is organized in such a way that it opposes God. It opposes the authority of God, the authority of Jesus Christ. And this is, this is the world that we live in. We were saved out of this world system and we're in the world, but not of the world anymore. Jesus tells us in, in, in his prayer in John chapter 17, we're in the world, but not of the world. And, and what does he pray in John 17? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And so we recognize that there is a distinction between those who are following Christ and those who are still in the world, but as followers of Christ, we still exist in this world. We're surrounded by the world. We're surrounded by thinking that is opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're surrounded by those who are seeking intentionally to suppress the revelation that God even exists, according to Romans chapter 1. And so Jesus and the three disciples, they've been up on this Mount of Transfiguration. They've been in fellowship with Moses and Elijah and with God the Father, and now they're descend, they've they descend from the, from the glimpse of glory that they saw to the, to the grime and the grit of a fallen world that's filled with sinful chaos. The world, because of who dominates it, because of the influence of Satan, because God, for a time, has given him a scope of authority to organize the system Against the purposes of God, this world, by decree of God, by decree of God, because of the fall, because of the entrance of sin, it is filled with pain and chaos. Romans 8 tells us that creation itself groans for the fullness of redemption that is yet to come when Jesus Christ returns. And so in the passage, we see that there's arguing. The disciples are, verse 14, arguing with the scribes. Jesus says, what, what are you arguing about? There's pain as, as a desperate father comes to the disciples with the, with the pain of a son that's overtaken by a demon. And he has to watch and has been watching and experiencing the suffering of his son for years and years and years. There are demons present. The, the Spirit, it says in verse 20, when they brought, the boy, they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And there's human inability. The disciples were not able. They weren't able to deal with it. We live in a world that is filled with pain and chaos. We live in a world that is dominated by the influences of the devil. Folks, this is not a safe place. This is a place where destruction, where pain, where chaos reigns. This world is not our home. In His common grace, the Lord gives us seasons, sometimes extended seasons of relief, and we thank Him and we praise Him for that, yet that is not the ultimate reality. And one day we're, we're going to experience the ultimate pain, the ultimate separation when this body quits in one way or another, and we die, we leave this world. The passage shows us that there's evil even in the land of promise. Evil is existing in Israel. Evil is in the religious leaders. The scribes are arguing with the disciples, and we've already been told what the scribes think about Jesus. They think he has a demon, and they're rejecting the Lord Jesus. They've, they've pushed him away, and they're doing everything they can to undermine his power. 
evil in the very presence of the disciples that Jesus has chosen. There's evil in the home of this man. And there's evil within the child, a spirit. A spirit dwells in that child and has from a very young age. Confrontation with this evil is exposing the lack of faith of the disciples. And there's the sense of the evil in general as we live in a fallen world and experience all the effects of sin. But there's also evil intensified in this passage with the destructive presence of demons. We're told that the spirit, when Jesus in verse 21 asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? The father answers from childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire and water to destroy him. To destroy him. Here's a young child. We don't know how young. The father says, from childhood. And then in verse 24, we're told immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So apparently the the boy is still recognized as a child, and yet from a very young stage of childhood, this, this evil spirit has been active in his life. And although the the description of what is taking place, that, he, that he's mute, that he's thrown down in these seizures, and th- those things could be described as organic physical issues, we're told in the Scripture that those seizures and what is taking place is due to the presence of the evil spirit. What a sad, tragic situation. It shows us how desperately we are reliant on the goodness and grace of God. A child, a child in the home of this father who is powerless to control the evil spirit that's in his son. He has no power. He can't do anything. The disciples can't do anything. We see the malicious nature of evil, the malicious nature of the devil, the malicious nature of Satan. Demons and the devil and evil is never a joking matter. The presence of this evil spirit in the boy, the father says, it has often cast him into the fire and in the water to destroy him. That is always the end game of evil. It is destruction. The devil is a destroyer. The devil is the enemy of your soul. His legions are the enemy of the soul. And although... In the time that we live in, we don't often experience the same physical manifestations of the presence of evil. We're told in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that there is a very malicious influence still at work, even even in the church, as Paul warns Timothy after telling him, you need to uphold the confession of faith in Christ, he warns Timothy that there are people that are false teachers, that their conscience is seared, and that they are dominated and driven and influenced by the doctrines of demons. False teaching. Any teaching that diminishes the revelation that we have in Scripture that diminishes the authority of Scripture, that diminishes the authority of Jesus Christ, that diminishes the finished, completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ is demonically driven. It is the doctrine of demons. It is not to be toyed with. The the picture that we have here of this convulsing child is, is the picture of the spiritual chaos that the deceptive doctrines of demons wreak on the soul to destroy it. 
And even as we consider in our families, our children, J.C. Ryle, in his, in his comments on this passage, one of his main points, one of his main points was to point out the evil influence that Satan exercises on our children from very, very early. And he warns, he warns parents, you cannot diminish, you cannot diminish the reality of what Satan wants to do in his malicious intentions with the souls of your children. We have to recognize that Scripture teaches, Scripture teaches that the moment we come into existence, we bear the imputed guilt of Adam. There is no such thing as someone who is innocent. The moment we come into existence, we bear the imputed guilt of Adam. And to diminish, to diminish disobedience, to look at our children as innocent, is to defy Scripture. They sin like you and I, like adults. They sin because they're sinners. And again, J.C. Ryle gives appropriate and strong warning to parents that we must, from the earliest ages, teach our children the nature of sin. We must have moral conversations with them. We must not dismiss their disobedience in a way that minimizes their sinfulness. We have to deal with them as God tells us to deal with them, to rear our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And the Lord is clear in the book of Proverbs multiple times that an undisciplined child is on a highway being paved for them to hell by their parents. That God has given to us responsibility to rear them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, which includes the godly, careful discipline of our children with the rod in obedience to the Lord. And when we see in this passage that Satan from early childhood, has dominated this child. It raises the awareness and, and the burden for us as parents to submit ourselves to the Lord and to deal with our children's souls, to deal with their souls through the revelation of Scripture, to lead them to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, to call them to repentance, to call them to seek the Lord for the forgiveness of their sins. That when they sin, that we instruct them that what they have done is destructive to their souls and they will be destroyed and they must turn to the Lord Jesus. And the discipline that we are required to give is in no way an expiation of their sin, an expiation of their guilt. It is simply a teaching tool to help them understand the weight of their sin. We have to call them to repentance. We have to call them to lean on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. This passage gives great weight to our responsibility and to the fact and to the fact that there 
that there is an adversary of our, child, of our children's souls. And we must constantly, as this Father has done, we must bring them, bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as we seek to parent in a way that honors God, cry out with the Father, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That wasn't in my notes. And I say it sympathetically and with the burden of having my own children. Your home, your home doesn't determine your eternal destiny. It's what you do with the Lord Jesus. And may the Lord give us grace as parents. to lead our children to the feet of Christ. Well, confrontation with evil exposes our lack of faith, and it might even expose it where in our homes. Faith is not measured on the mountaintop. It's not measured by what happens there. It's measured in the mundane. It's measured when we're confronted with the tsunami of evil. Well, what do we see in the disciples that causes Jesus to grieve over the faithless, the faithless generation? Well, we see, first of all, that a lack of faith generates confusion. The scribes are arguing with the disciples, and the disciples seem to be befuddled. We're not told the content of what is happening. We just know that they were unable to deal with the, with the demon. And the scribes are now arguing with them. And they, they, they're powerless even in the, the face of the argument. And what, what's happening? Why, why do they have this confusion? Why do they have this inability? Well, what happened at the end of chapter 8? At the end of chapter 8, Jesus began to teach his disciples about the cross. And what was their response? Well, their response, as represented by Peter, was, No, that can't be the case. That's not why you came. And then right after this, and, and this is why I read this in our Scripture reading this morning in verses 31 through 32, right after this, Jesus again teaches on the cross. And what are we told by the disciples? They did, or about the disciples, they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask Him. So something has happened here in, in the minds of the disciples they were following Christ. They left everything to follow Christ. But now Jesus, Jesus is intensifying the teaching about the cross. He's intensifying the teaching about what it means to follow him. If you're going to follow Christ, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And the disciples are struggling to grasp that. They have not grasped the teaching of the cross. They lack faith to grasp what Jesus is telling them it's outside of their experience. It's outside of their expectation. And because they're failing to grasp the fullness of the mission of Christ, they're failing to grasp the redemptive plan of the Father that will take place as Christ goes to the cross, they're ineffective in their service. You know, they're... they're foundation is basically the same as the scribes in the sense that they're, they're not receiving the words of Christ even as the scribes weren't. And they have no ability to refute them. It's convicting for us, isn't it, that a lack of faith in the Word of God, a lack of faith in the person of Christ will indeed generate spiritual confusion. When we're confronted with truths of Scripture that are uncomfortable, when we're confronted with truths of Scripture that, that we do not want to submit to, that we you know, might internally raise our fists against, 
Often that leads to confusion regarding the rest of Scripture and an inability to harmonize the truth of Scripture. And it's difficult then to even argue with those who don't believe. Resisting truth hinders your ability to understand the harmony of revelation. And so because they haven't grasped the cross, their minds are in turmoil. And this is the paradox of revelation. This is the paradox of understanding the revelation of God, that that in order to understand, you must first believe. The world hates that. But in order to understand, you have to believe that what God says, whatever He says, that's true because God has spoken. In order to understand, you must first believe. And the disciples, the disciples are struggling with that. And so that lack of faith generates confusion. And, and this often happens even as, as younger believers and followers of Christ are confronted with the claims of the world and the pressure of the world to capitulate to worldly thinking. They these claims and the, and the seeming reasonableness of worldly thinking challenges them and they become confused. And the answer, the answer is to not know all the arguments of every deviant form of religion. The answer is to know the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer is to believe what God has said. When, when, there, when you believe what God has said, when you believe in the authority of Scripture, right, Scripture settles it. Christ settles it. And it's from that firm foundation, from that strong place that you then are able to stand against the tide of evil. But a lack of faith will generate confusion. A lack of faith also reveals weakness. Notice what the Father says. I ask your disciples in verse 18, I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. They were not able. Jesus came to overthrow the power of darkness. And in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 14 through 15, Paul says this, speaking about our debt, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The overthrow of evil, what Christ came to do when he came to overthrow the power of evil, the overthrow of evil came through the cross. All the powers of wickedness were defeated at the cross for those who are in Christ. And that is the very doctrine that the disciples were resisting. That is the very doctrine that they were having difficulty understanding. And so they were unable because of a lack of faith in Christ. Their their failure to grasp the significance of the cross rendered them powerless against the evil opposition. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that in the midst of our spiritual warfare, we are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And if that's the case, we must grasp everything about Christ. We can't stand in our own might. We can't stand in our own reason. We have to stand in the strength of His might. And so Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, resist the devil, how? Firm in the faith. And when we dismiss any part of Revelation, when we dismiss any part of the work of the Lord Jesus, whether it's the fact that His atonement was in our place, it was substitutionary, whether it's about His person, any aspect of Revelation that we dismiss, we're not firm in the faith. And we can't stand against the tsunami of evil, the powers of evil. Resist the devil firm in your faith. 
Resisting revealed truth generates vulnerability. And the doctrines of demons that Paul warns Timothy about easily influence the minds of those unsubmitted to the truth. The disciples were ineffective in their service to Christ because they resisted the words of Christ. And that kind of unbelief can be so subtle that only when faced with crisis do we realize how ineffective we are and how confused and weak we are. Confrontation with evil reveals a lack of faith. But let's go on and notice secondly this morning that a lack of faith does not diminish Jesus' power. Oh, the disciples are weak. They're resisted. They haven't grasped the fullness of who Christ is. And yet that lack of faith does not diminish Christ's power. Jesus grieves over the lack of faith. Verse 19, when the Father comes and says the disciples are not able to help him. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. In a moment, we'll see him deliver this desperate child. But first, notice how that Jesus grieves over a lack of faith. And think about, think about what Jesus what must be going through Jesus' mind, if we can do that in a reverent manner. Christ has descended from the glories of heaven, from the place where the Father is worshipped. And He's come down to this world that is saturated with unbelief. He knows what eternity is. He, he knows what awaits those who believe in Him. He knows that He's come to deliver from evil, to save and yet he's confronted with unbelief. Faith in him delivers from evil, and yet despite the fullness of God's revelation in the person of Christ, the God-man sent, and when you go back and read through Mark, we, we see how clear it has been that Jesus is casting out demons, that, that he's raising the dead, he's healing, he's restoring, he is God in flesh, and yet unbelief persists. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Oh, faithless generation, how long will I bear with you? It was this lack of faith that thrust all humanity into sin, and it's prevailing faithlessness that keeps mankind under condemnation. And in, in, this, in this verse, this brief statement of the Lord Jesus, this is a lament. What is it? What is it that grieves the Lord Jesus Christ? Because what grieves the Lord Jesus should also grieve those who follow the Lord Jesus. And what we find that grieves the Lord Jesus is faithlessness. Faithlessness. And so when we lament, and we should... We live in a world that is dominated by evil. We live in a world where the result of faithlessness is, is horrible sin and conflicts and wars. Everything around us that we see is, is generated by a lack of faith. A lack of faith that began when Adam and Eve didn't believe what God had said and they believed the lie that the, that the serpent put before them. And so we should we need to lament the faithlessness the faithlessness that is behind the destruction that we see around us jesus grieves over a lack of faith do we grieve do we grieve over a lack of faith in our own lives do we grieve how slow we are to, to take the spiritual realities, the eternal things that God has put in His Word and to appropriate them and, and, to, and to form our priorities in our lives around what God has said, not, not based on what we feel or what is convenient or what we want? Oh, faithless generation. Jesus grieves over a lack of faith, yet... Jesus delivers despite a lack of faith. Jesus delivers despite a lack of faith. And 
You know, even think, thinking about what I said earlier about parenting, you know, you know when I think any parent, when we look at what God says and when we take seriously what Scripture says, we think there's no hope for my child. But Jesus delivers despite our faithlessness. The disciples' lack of faith did not diminish Jesus' power. The religious leaders' lack of faith did not diminish Jesus' power. The small faith of the Father, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, did not diminish Jesus' power. The unbelief of the crowds, the faithlessness of the multitudes, did not diminish Jesus' power. In fact, in the midst of all that faithlessness of the people surrounding Jesus, verse 20 in response to Jesus' instruction to bring the child to him, they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And then in verse 25, 25 and 26, after Jesus commands the Spirit, Come out and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. Most of them said, he's dead. What do those passages show us? Well, there's all this human faithlessness, but the spiritual beings recognize who Jesus is. And they recognize his power and they recognize his authority even when the faith of Jesus' followers is lacking. Jesus delivers despite a lack of faith and he delivers entirely. He orders the Spirit to leave and to never come again and the Spirit leaves and Jesus restores him. He raises him up and he's restored to his Father. Let's apply this. How's your faith this morning? Well, if you're like me, you're right alongside the Father. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, regardless, regardless of your struggles to believe, as a child of God, as a follower of Christ, I'm talking to those who are in the Lord Jesus. Let me encourage you in this way. Jesus will deliver all of his people entirely from their weakness, from their disease, despite the smallness of faith. Not necessarily here, but one day. We struggle here to believe. And yet, when Christ returns, what are we told? We're told that when Christ returns, He will transform our bodies and bring us to dwell with Him forever. And, and the basis for the transformation that's going to take place, the basis for our deliverance from all evil, from the presence of evil, and, and the basis for a, a glorified body and being in the presence of God forever and ever is not the perfection of our faith. The basis for all of that is the perfection of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the perfection and power of his finished work. It's Christ. It's Christ. He is the one who delivers. And so in response to that, we say with the Father, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. A lack of faith does not diminish Jesus' power. Jesus delivers despite a lack of faith. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that you can get to heaven without believing in Christ. Right? That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm, again, I'm speaking to those who have turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, who, like the disciples, you've, you've fo you're following Jesus Christ, and yet at times you struggle with your faith. You struggle to, to believe and to grasp the, the spiritual realities revealed in Scripture. Rest in Jesus. Rest in Jesus and, and understand that it's not the perfection of your faith that is your ultimate hope. 
It's the perfect work of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the source and he is the object of faith. Look, look at the Father's response. Jesus, in his kindness, asked the Father, You know, how long has this been happening? The Father details it. And at the end, he says in verse 22, But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. The father understood something. Jesus is the source and the object of faith. Lord, I, I believe I believe in you, and you're the one that's going to have to help my unbelief. You're the one to whom I'm looking, and you're the one that's going to have to fill up what is lacking. Jesus is the source and the object of faith. As the Father recognizes the weakness of his faith, he doesn't turn inward, he turns to the Lord. Now, Jesus says something here in verse 23, If you can, all things are possible for him who believes. So as we turn to Christ as the source and the object of our faith, what can we expect based on what Jesus says, all things are possible for him who believes? What does he mean? Well, simply stated, all things that require faith are possible for the one who believes. All things that require faith are possible for the one who believes. And considering that Christ is the object of genuine faith, all that Christ offers is fully and only appropriated by faith in Him. In other words, Jesus is not saying that your desires are met by claiming what you want in Jesus' name. That would be a misinterpretation of this passage. This is not health and wealth. This is not just throw on Jesus' name and you're going to have a great life. Anything you want, it's yours. No, it's much better than that. It's much better than that. All that God offers in Christ is granted fully and freely by believing in Christ. Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Well, what does that look like? I mean, because really, I, I, you know, I just want a new truck. Oh, how faithless. How temporal. Based on the glories of what we're promised in Christ. Well... What does that look like? Faith. Faith brings divine peace and comfort when the physical body fails. We want the physical comfort. Faith says, no, when you're in physical pain, when you're in suffering, you have much greater peace and comfort. Faith sustains the soul when relationships with people you love crumble in front of you. You can find satisfaction in the Lord Jesus and, and you can handle those torn and distorted relationships from, from the standpoint of being satisfied in the Lord Jesus and ministering in love when those relationships fall apart. Faith ushers you into the throne room of God when you are beset with temptations that seem beyond your strength to resist. Faith grants boldness to speak the truth of God's word when the enemies of Christ multiply. And so all things are possible for one who believes. Forgiveness of sin, entrance into the kingdom of God, deliverance from sin and death, strength to stand against the adversary of our souls, the ability to love God and love one another, productive Christian lives, all come through faith. Everything that God offers through the gospel of Jesus Christ is possible to attain for those who believe. Jesus supplies the faith. 
Jesus is the object of the faith. Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. Do you want the benefits, the blessings, the spiritual abundance that comes through Jesus Christ? Oh, hear the word of God. Turn to the Lord Jesus. Look to the Lord. Jesus delivers despite our lack of faith. And so finally, as we close this morning, last brief point, what does dependent faith look like? A confrontation with with evil reveals our lack of faith. Jesus delivers despite our lack of faith. But what does dependent faith look like? Well, simply stated, dependent faith accepts the totality of Jesus. Dependent faith accepts the whole Christ. Dependent faith accepts the totality of Christ. And look at what, again, the disciples raise in verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus says, because you have little faith, because you have little faith. Dependent faith accepts the totality of Christ by first of all receiving instruction. The disciples' failure was tied to the teaching of the cross. That's what intervenes between them being effective in chapter 6 and ineffective in this account. And so when we accept the totality of Christ, we meet, that means that we accept all that Scripture teaches about His person and work. As God continues to grow us in the faith, as He continues to expand our understanding of the work and person of, of Christ through the Word of God, our constant posture, our constant response to the Word of God is, yes, I believe that. Yes, I believe that. I might have not known that. I might have not understood that fully before. But now that I'm hearing it from the Word of God, yes, I believe that. Yes, I believe that. Dependent faith accepts the totality of Christ by receiving the scriptural instruction of Christ, by refusing to dismiss anything that Scripture teaches us about Christ. And then dependent faith expresses itself in prayer. Prayer prayer is the evidence of our belief in God, a God who we do not see, but yet who hears us. It's the very expression of faith. Faith precedes prayer, and prayer communicates dependence on the God that you cannot see. And any time there's a, there's a resistance to truth like what was happening in the life of the disciples, our prayer life is strangled and we are ineffective in our service to the Lord. And so we daily need the grace of God to constantly accept all that Scripture reveals concerning Christ, to submit our lives to all that Christ is, to order our lives according to what Christ has said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We look to Jesus for faith. He is the object and the source of our faith. And so to dismiss any part of who Christ is jeopardizes our spiritual life and jeopardizes our usefulness to the Lord. The disciples lacked faith. Jesus overcame and delivered. Jesus overcomes the faithlessness of his people. So may the Lord increase our faith. May we cry out with the Father, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The disciples didn't fully grasp the significance of the cross, but Jesus completed the work. And it's because of his completed work that by his grace we overcome evil for his glory as we wait for his return.
Lord, we thank you today for sending Christ to redeem us from our sins. We thank you for the Word of God that deals with us at our weakest points and that shows us the sufficiency and the strength of our Savior. And so, Lord, may we rest in Him today. May we rest in His finished work as we seek to serve Him for Your glory and for Your honor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.